Old Man Winter here. If I had it my way, it would stay winter all year long. Short days, wind chill, black ice and a good polar vortex. Oh, <laughs> heaven. Wait, is it getting warm in here? Your cold snap is over, Old Man Winter. Spring has arrived. Spring. Spring is here, which means it's the perfect time to get away in the Hyundai you've always wanted. Visit the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event, where you can get great deals on all of our award-winning Hyundai models, like the tech-filled Tucson and Kona, as well as the spacious Palisade. Enjoy wherever you go with the peace of mind that comes with America's best warranty and three years or 36,000 miles of complimentary maintenance. But hurry in. These deals won't last. Add more joy to your journey at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now get 0% APR or up to 1,500 bonus cash on the Hyundai Tucson. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offers end soon. Call 562-314-4603 for details. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, a writer and researcher at MLB.com. Joined by Matt Myers, MLB.com National Content Editor. On today's show, we are going to talk for, I guess, the third time about a team that Carlos Correa has signed with, <laughs> the last time for sure. Trevor Story is going to miss a whole bunch of time, which is super interesting to me. We're going to talk about a couple of trades. The Phillies and the Tigers made a trade. We're also going to get into changes to Comerica Park. The Dodgers and the Marlins made a trade. And we're going to finish off by talking about how many Hall of Famers you might see in the upcoming season. Matt, I have a question for you. I watched the Carlos Correa press conference yesterday. I watched him put on a Twins jersey. Everybody says the deal is final. The physical is done. I'm still not sure I believe it. Like, I'm not going to believe it until, like, May 15th that he's actually still a twin. And it's going to be very funny because you're going to look at his baseball card and you'll see 2022 twins, 2023 twins. Oh, I, I guess nothing interesting happened there. I cannot even like conceive of another scenario like this in baseball history. It was notable yesterday when the twins sent out the press release officially announcing the deal that it was the subject line of the email was all caps OFFICIAL colon Correa signs with the twins. You usually don't get that. You usually don't need that that point of emphasis, but it was like, we're making this very clear. This is actually happening. And it has happened. They sent out the press release. They had the press conference, the press conference that the Giants never had, that the Mets never had. So it is happening. He's back with the twins. And there's a lot, there's a lot of layers here, I think. I, boy, I, it's like, I hardly know where to start. Um, I, I was thinking about this, you know, six years and 200 million. I don't want to add complexity to, complexity to all of this, right? And then obviously, you know, four vesting options worth 70 million more. But if that was the final deal, should there have been a time between the Mets thing being on hold and the Twins finalizing where other teams should have been like, oh, now we want to get back in on this, you know? Now, like, maybe the Dodgers should have been on in this. Maybe the Red Sox, once they had some idea that Story was going to get hurt, should be back in on this. Like, I was almost surprised it didn't, like, open back up to everybody outside of the Twins at that point. I mean, I do think it's, you know, for better or worse, teams, they do set their budgets. Like, hey, here's how much we're going to have for player, And, like, at this point in the offseason, pretty much every team has reached that point or is at that point, right? So I think that's like, you know, there are certain teams, Mets and Dodgers, in that conversation where, like, they're much more likely to kind of just say, you know what, forget the budget. We have this opportunity. We're going to capitalize on it. But I think that at this point in the winter, the the, the market there was, was, was pretty small. So it doesn't surprise me that he ended up, you know, back with the Twins. And, like, I mean— I don't know. There's something there's some, I, first of all, I like that. He's going to be able to stay at shortstop. I will say, I, I don't really like when players who can play up the middle positions end up moving to teams where they end up 
playing positions that sort of don't showcase everything they can do. Like, as I've said before in this podcast, I think it's lame that Fernando Tatis Jr. is going to play the outfield now. Like, he was exciting at shortstop. Like, maybe he wasn't great at, like, you know, the metrics said, like, oh, he was erratic, he made mistakes, but, like, once a week, he'd do something, you'd be like, oh, my goodness, that was insane. And I think it's so, like, Carlos Correa, third baseman, not quite as exciting, exciting as Carlos Correa, shortstop. I do think there's also something cool about maybe, like, the Stars don't always sign with, you know, the big coastal juggernaut teams. It's, like, it's kind of cool that he signed with the Twins and that he's going to be there. So there's there's some aspects of this that I think are are pretty pretty interesting and pretty compelling. I, I agree with that part entirely. You know, it's like, oh, he's going to go to San Francisco, he's going to go to New York. No, he's going to go to Minnesota. And I'm very happy, I think, for both sides that there's no opt-out in this. Like, we're not going to reopen this up again next year or the year after. He is there for six years, for better or worse, and potentially 10 if everything goes on. Uh, I thought this was a pretty funny line from um, Grant Brisby, who writes for The Athletic, and he said, whatever's wrong with his ankle is seven years and $150 million wrong. His ankle is worth negative Carlos Rodon. (laughs) I mean, he hasn't missed any time because of this thing, but everybody's going to be staring at this ankle for the next six years, just like waiting, which is, it's, I don't know, you're supposed to have like this celebratory moment. You're a free agent, you've been a great player, you're going to earn this big contract. And it just, it feels like such a bitter taste in everyone's mouth. The, the ankle thing, obviously, it's hard to. I'm not a doctor. I didn't see the medicals. I don't really know. I can't really make an informed opinion on it. I mean, I will say this. I mean, the the Giants. Everyone has been saying the Giants need to sign a superstar. It's time that they've been trying to sign a superstar. The fact that the Giants walked away from it when they had it basically like signed to delivered is a pretty like I don't want to say like huge red flag, but it's pretty noticeable. And I also I also do, and I say this as someone. I hope I like Cray as a player. I hope he stays healthy. I want to see him on the field. But like this idea of like, well, he's never missed time with an ankle injury before. So obviously it's fine. Is like, you're not, you're not signing. It's like any free agent. You're not signing his last eight years. You're looking for risk factors the next eight years, right? It's like when Albert Pujols signs, well, well, Albert Pujols has hit 40 home runs and hit 300 for the last 10 years. So like, obviously that's what he will keep doing. It's like, no, you don't, you don't repeat what happened. You're trying to project into the future. And obviously the Giants saw a big red flag and the Mets eventually had similar concerns. And even the, I mean, even the twins ended up signing him for a lot less than supposedly they originally offered him, right? They originally supposedly offered him 10 for two, 280. Is that right? 285. Yeah. Yeah. I was say it just, it, it's amazing to me how much this out of nowhere changes the perception of the twins off season, right? Like you, you, you rank teams based on disappointing off seasons. I think pretty clearly Dodgers and Red Sox are number one and two in that conversation. I guess the giants are in that mix too, but the twins are pretty high up there because they had such a disappointing year last year and they wanted to retain Correa. They couldn't, they didn't really do that much else. I mean, yeah, Christian Vasquez is fine. Joey Gallo is an interesting bounce back guy. And you just, they had money to spend and there was nowhere to spend it. And all of a sudden it's like, oh no, we're, we're not going to start Kyle Farmer at shortstop. We're going to get Carlos Correa. All of a sudden in a pretty weak division, the twins are, I don't know, four or five wins better just from replacing Kyle Farmer, uh, who helped their bench because he's a versatile guy with Carlos Correa. Like, and this is a team where, where would you have projected them before this? Like, I don't know, even 500 maybe or thereabouts, like 81, 82 wins. You know, if you if you go from, I don't know, wherever Oakland's going to be, right? You add five wins, who cares? You know, if you're the Braves, let me be not the Braves because it's a tight one, but if you're at the very top of the league, like there's only so many wins you can add. But if you can add like five wins right here, that that is hugely important. That, that gets them into the division race, I think. Yeah, I mean, it's, as a, a fan of races, this is, this is exciting because until this, it was like, oh, the Guardians are probably going to win that division again. This really spices it up. If you look at 
you know, Fangraph's projections right now, the they've got the Guardians projected for 45 wins above replacement as a team, and the Twins at 42, so it's very close. And one thing that really stood out to me is that they have the Twins and Guardians basically projected for the exact same pitching war, and the Guardians having almost all the edge on the offensive side, which surprised me, because people think of like, oh, the Guardians are this awesome, you know, pitching team, but they really don't have a lot of offense. But like, I think this actually speaks to, and you, you note this in our in our notes as I read them, that like the, the, the Twins have a quietly pretty interesting bullpen. And I think that like, it's better than probably perception because they added Jorge Lopez during the year last year. And Johan Duran is like, pretty dominant and interesting like so it's 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 a it's a good group and that really kind of surprised me that that projection of having them this it, this the same as the guardians in pitching yeah we're doing the uh, top 10 lists for each position at MLB network and I, I think in my reliever list each of these teams had a top three guy because i went edwin diaz one emmanuel class a two and i think i put joan durant the third best reliever in baseball and they've got a kind of i mean i guess both teams have gotten there in different ways but their bullpens are somewhat anonymous in the sense of like, who do most people know who Griffin Jacks is? Probably not. I think he was your guy, like one of your guy to focus on last summer at some point. Yeah, from the Air, Air, Force, Air Force guy. Yeah, who th- like kind of, you know, okay as starter, third, throwing his slider all the time. Like he's pretty good. Caleb Tealbar is good. Emilio Pagano always feels like he should be better than he is. And what they didn't have last year was any starting pitching depth. And now they do. Like they've got a pretty deep rotation. They don't have like the guy. They don't have Bieber. Um, and as, as far as competing with Cleveland, I was sort of wondering. I mean, you look at Cleveland's rotation. Bieber's great. McKenzie's you know really like progressed. I was wondering if they might trade like a Zach Plesac or an Aaron Savale for a bat in order to try to get like you know even some room for the next wave of starting pitchers that that they have. Like there's a lot of interesting guys there. But I've learned my lesson. I will not spend another offseason talking about the outfield bats that I think Cleveland should get because we both know damn well it's never going to happen. To their credit, they did sign Josh Bell, so that was that was a good ad. Uh, but they're not going to sign an outfield bat. I think I went back to like Andrew McCutcheon in 2016 or whatever. Didn't happen then. It's not going to happen now. I know better than that. But do you think the Twins are in this, right? Like one and one A? I think they're they're pretty interesting for a couple of reasons too. Is if you look at their depth chart the, the, on Fangraphs, the roster resource page maintained by Jason Martinez, he currently has Nick Gordon penciled in a DH. That feels like there's ways they can upgrade. Now he has Alex Kirilov on the bench, so maybe this is Alex Kirilov's moment finally, um, or Trevor Larnack, another name who could come in. Maybe they go out and sign one of these like Adam Duvall, Jerks, and Profar types. Who I actually think would would be a little bit of an upgrade for them because it would maybe give some freedom for Joey Gallo to DH. Like, Larnack and Kirilov have not really done anything. And the other huge wild card is Royce Lewis, who was awesome for a month last year before re-injuring his ACL. And, like, we don't know what to expect of him. But, like, he looked fantastic. He was the number one overall pick, like, five or six years ago. There's talent there. So, like, when you talk about X-Factors in the 2023 season, he could become this, like, multi-positional guy who adds this this level to the the Twins that really could 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 take them up a notch. I mean, he very well may not. As I said, he is an X factor, but there are ways. There are easy ways for them to upgrade when you look at their DH spot, and I think that that's sort of what also makes them kind of intriguing. Yeah, I like Kirilov a lot. He's just always got wrist injuries. I think he's coming off another surgery. My prediction is there's a trade coming here at some point because their outfield is pretty left-handed, right? Kirilov's a lefty. They added Joey Gallo, who's a lefty. Nick Gordon's a lefty, and it's felt like forever they might trade Max Kepler. Uh, Max Kepler to the Marlins. 
for some kind of pitching. Like you could potentially see a fit there. There's one more career related thing I wanted to ask you before we move on. This is, uh, I think, kind of a a shocking turn of event for the Mets, who have maybe sort of gotten used to, we have all of the money on the entire planet, and so we will get any player we want. And they didn't, not because they couldn't, like they probably could have consummated this deal, they just didn't. And now I've seen a lot of, uh, of fans kind of saying, well, how do they respond to this disappointment? And I... I don't want to say like he was a luxury ad, but you didn't expect to get him. It was almost kind of a miracle. It didn't work out with San Francisco. And then it's like, oh, all of a sudden we have Carlos Correa too. So why not? And it's like, well, it's still a very good team. I do think the offense is maybe not as powerful as you like, but what could you even do? There's no more impact free agents left. If you're going to make a trade, it's going to be for like an overpriced big name that ends in disaster. Like, I don't know, Anthony Rendon, Christian, Jelic, like the kind of trade you don't want to make. And you can't just assume, oh, we'll save the money. We'll get Machado or Otani next year. Cause like eight other teams are saying that, like, I guess it's a big disappointment. It won't play well on the back pages here in New York, but I kind of feel like they don't have to do anything big right now. No, I don't think so. I mean, as you said, it would have been kind of a luxury. And, I mean, they won 101 games last year. They've essentially, like, they lost some players, but they kind of brought in a, a sort of, like, a clear replacement for all of them. Merlander for DeGrom, you know, uh, Senga for for Bassett, uh, Quintana for Taiwan Walker. There's, like, obvious sort of, like, you know, replacements for these for these players that left. And while I don't necessarily think they're going to win 101 games again, because it's hard to do that, the talent base is still there for a 90 to 95 win team. As I said last time, I think that with Correa, they're probably the clear favorites in the NL East. Now I think it's the Braves, although Fangraphs has the Mets with more projected war for, for take that for what it for what it's for what it's worth. I also think that, I mean like, you know, the Mets, Steve Cohen, have talked about trying to emulate the Dodgers, right? And obviously, that's hard to do. But one thing the Dodgers have done a really good job of over the years is sh- keeping keeping long-term positional flexibility. They have stars, of course, always, but there's always cycling in, and like they have opportunities to bring in new players. They're not like been overly locked in at too many positions. And they've also shown discipline. They've let some of their own star free agents walk away sometimes. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, like, like Zach Greinke was like the perfect example, like, five, you know, it's what I guess now seven years ago now, where it was like, hey, this guy's great. He fits us. But like at this moment, we're not going to spend money on this. We were looking ahead, you know, we're looking at our our depth chart two or three years out. And like, this is how we want to kind of look look into the future. So I think that that's part of what you do. Eventually, the Mets were like, you know what, based on what we see this risk profile for, for Cray now, we have a bunch of infield prospects. You know, we're still looking ahead, maybe Machado next year. Yeah, obviously, there's no guarantees, but like there's a lot of opportunity now where if you had signed Correa, it's like third base and shortstop were kind of locked in for 10 plus years, which could have been a great thing. Obviously, I don't think I wanted to complain about that, but it also limits what you can do with your roster going forward. Have you looked around this winter? Who wants to emulate the Dodgers right now? <laughs> I mean, they're still a very good team. We'll talk about them in a minute. We'll take a break and we'll be back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast.
We are back on the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Mike and Matt, we move into our three batter minimum with three interesting topics of the week. And Matt, if you told me a couple of days ago that the Carlos Correa saga would end with him not actually signing with the Mets and that I wouldn't find it the most interesting shortstop story of the week, <laughs> I would have been quite surprised because kind of out of nowhere yesterday, the Red Sox, who just had a tremendously disappointing offseason for a number of reasons, announced that Trevor Story is going to have right elbow surgery. They're calling it internal brace surgery, which is sort of uh, an alternative to Tommy John. It's not supposed to be as long of a recovery time. And he's going to be out for four to six months. So maybe half the season, maybe longer. It's, it's sort of hard to tell. Like maybe he'll be able to hit, but not throw. Uh, it's all very uncertain. And there's a lot that's going into this. I mean, we've been talking about Trevor Story's elbow for like four years at this point, even going back to when he was with Colorado and, you know, he heard it and uh, the, the data kind of backed up that the arm strength just just wasn't there. I mean, um, you go back to 2020 with the StatCast numbers, uh, he was a below average shortstop just in terms of arm strength, 22nd of 34th. And then in 2021, he was near the bottom, 52nd of 58th. And then he went to second base and he was 61st of 70. Now, to his credit, he was still a very good defender. Like his range was phenomenal. Maybe you don't worry about arm strength so much at second base, but obviously letting Bogarts go, he was going to go back to shortstop. And Heim Bloom said that, you know, why did this only happen now? Because he experienced pain in the elbow while ramping up his throwing just before Christmas. I have so many opinions about this. I guess I don't know for sure. Like, you know, is it normal for him to not have been throwing hard until Christmas? Like, is this something they should have known? Was he trying to rest the elbow? As Buster only reported, some teams passed on Trevor Story last year because they felt he inevitably would require major elbow surgery. And here we are. You wonder why they could, you know, the Red Sox were kind of out of the race by September. As you said, we've been talking about this for years. This is not like, you know, when I saw the press release come through, like the mysterious press release the Red Sox sent out um, that didn't offer a timeline, which you know it's bad when they don't offer a timeline in the press release. (laughs) Um, I was not surprised at all by it. And I was thinking, like, we've talked about this before, and you've you've, you've highlighted this, the, the, the arm strength stuff, where it's almost like, well... It almost, I mean, I guess the player has to, he has to, you know, agree to it. So I guess you can't just force a player to do it. But it seems like the Red Sox were kind of out of it by September 1st. They could have said, you know what, let's just do this now. And you could be back by the All-Star break. And now instead, you wait four months and he's going to miss the whole season. Or maybe, the, not the whole season, maybe the whole season. And it's kind of a disaster. Oh, man. I was reading uh, in Ian Brown's story on RedSox.com. He listed the players currently on the Red Sox 40-man roster who have ever had a start at shortstop. And, okay, Kike Hernandez has 64 starts. He's probably fine there, but then that opens up questions of who plays center field. Justin Turner has 30 starts. That's right, Justin Turner, who hasn't started there in at least a decade, probably since he was with the Mets. Uh, Christian Arroyo, 17. And that one weird Bobby Dahlbeck start from last year or the year before. If you look at their Fangrass projections, right, they're the 28th ranked shortstops and the 23rd ranked second base. Because remember, it's not just replacing Story, it's replacing Bogarts, which they didn't do at all. And now they have to replace Story too. And it's like, are they going to sign Jose Iglesias again? Sure. Alvis Andrus, fine. Trade for Paul DeYoung, I think, could be interesting. Um, you know who I really like? I don't know if he's healthy. Nick Ahmed, I think, is interesting. I mean, he's never that great of a bat, but he's a phenomenal defensive shortstop. You could probably have him for not that much. I also, and I hate to say this because I know this is not the approach they're trying to take. It doesn't matter. I, the team is not good. They will be the fifth place team. I don't, I don't think this matters that much. I'm sorry to say it. 
I mean, Nick Ahmed, to be clear, is from East Longmeadow, Massachusetts and went to UConn. So he would be beloved <laughs> yes. at Fenway Park. This needs to happen. <laughs> um, the second thing, though, is you're right. It was also it was a very weird juxtaposition of them making the story announcement and then the next day having the press conference to announce <laughs> the Devers. Devers extension where it was kind of like, hey, like, good news, everyone. We got Devers, even though next season is probably going to be going to be a wash uh it's that was a the story thing a tough blow i don't really know i was always already kind of skeptical and this obviously kind of really as i said fourth or fifth place in the in the al east seems extremely likely at this point for the red sox i want it on the record right now january 12th um on july 30th or so of this upcoming summer the red sox will trade justin turner back to the dodgers i i would absolutely guarantee that that's what's going to happen. All right. There's a couple interesting trades that we need to get to. First was uh, over last weekend, the Phillies and the Tigers made an interesting trade. The Tigers traded their closer, Gregory Soto, and also infielder Cody Clemens to the Phillies for Matt Veerling, Nick Maton, and Donnie Sands. Soto is, I think, a really interesting case of how do you view relievers through a modern lens? Because like 20 years ago, you'd have said, wow, back-to-back all-star, tons of saves. This guy, This guy's great. And you look at what they got, like some interesting hitters, but, you know, it's not exactly top prospects or anything, maybe not even like any starters. And the reason for that is uh, teams don't look at all-star appearances. Part of the reason he made the all-star game twice is because the Tigers don't exactly have a lot of other guys in the mix and every team requires one. Um, And part of him is because, you know, he's got to pitch the ninth inning instead of the seventh, and therefore he got a lot of saves. He has a really big arm. Uh, averages like 98 miles an hour on his fastball. He does not throw strikes, but I, I found something that I think was really interesting. If you look at the last three seasons, I looked at everybody who threw 100 innings. We're talking about over 350 pitchers. Only seven of them have a higher walk rate than Gregory Soto. That is absolutely terrifying. One of them is Raldis Chapman, who's probably never going to pitch again. But one of the other names on that list with a higher walk rate than Gregory Soto is his new teammate Jose Alvarado, who also has a history of having a big arm and having no idea where the ball is going to go. And I don't know if everybody realized what happened last year, what the Phillies did with Alvarado. He, in the first two months of the season, right, he got sent down to the minor leagues uh, in the middle of May. Through that demotion, he had a 762 ERA and a 15% walk rate and a 26% strikeout rate. They worked on a lot of stuff in the minors. He comes back for the rest of the season, a 166 ERA, a 9% walk rate down from 15, a 43% strikeout rate. And if you remember the run of the World Series, it was basically him and Sir Anthony Dominguez that got ridden like every single night. So if this is repeatable, if they can help Soto in the same way that they helped Alvarado, then maybe they just got, you know, a really good reliever for not that much. Uh, And if not, then, you know, he's like the fifth best reliever on a somewhat interesting bullpen that also added Craig Kimbrell. Yeah, I feel like a few years ago, and there, we did an episode when Soto had his first kind of breakout year, right? He was one of my guys because he's been in his career. He's been one of those pitchers where he's had like months where you look at him. And it's like, how does anyone ever hit this guy? Right. So similar to what you say about Jose Alvarado, frankly, where there's been stretches in his career where you're like, how does anyone ever hit this guy? I think this is, I mean, this feels like a logical trade for both sides, although the Phillies really like to accumulate these kinds of like feast or famine relievers, right? I mean, Kimbrell at this point in his career is very much a feast or famine reliever. Jose Alvarado, I would still count as a feast or famine reliever. So their bullpen definitely is deeper, but it still has this like on any given night could be a total disaster, tire fire. But it's, you know, the 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 overall top to bottom depth of that of that bullpen when you add in those guys is definitely more interesting than in years past. So for like Philly, I totally get it. 
And I think that Matt Veerling is a really interesting acquisition for the Tigers. This is exactly what, if you're the Tigers, it's like, okay, we have this guy. We don't need a capital C closer, especially one who walks, you know, 15% of batters. And so you turn him into a guy, Matt Veerling, is he going to be a star? Probably not, but he's got really interesting batted ball metrics. You know, he's, um, he's what last year he was like 93rd percentile in expected batting average, 85th percentile in hard hit rate, 80th percentile in whiff rate. So like, there's a lot to like in that profile. They also have, Right now, their entire outfield is left-handed hitting. Riley Green, Austin Meadows, and a name is escaping me who's also a left-handed hitter. Um, Matt Veerling coming in as a right-handed hitter gives some nice balance. There'll be lots of opportunity for him to mix and match and fill in in that lineup. It's like a, it's a nice it's a nice little move little move for the for the Tigers. I think. Yeah, I, I don't know if this is who you meant, but they actually have two Meadows. They have Austin, and they also have his brother uh, Parker. And um, uh, Akil Badu, that might have been who you meant. That's something I'm thinking about Akil Badu. Here's, here's the thing. I, I, I found two things I think fascinating about this. One was just the kind of trade that Scott Harris made. There were no minor league prospects in this. You know, the third guy, Donnie Sands, is a, a catcher who's had at least like a little bit of big league time and might factor into the mix. And none of these guys are like long-term top end prospects he got three hitters who could factor into the 2023 team like right away which i think shows you how desperate they were to add any sort of offense whatsoever because it was a completely dreadful offense last year that's the second thing though i've seen a lot of people saying similar to what you just did which is well there's untapped upside in matt veerling right it's very fast hits the ball hard if you can get him to not put it on the ground so much you might have something there and that's like 100 percent true but every Tiger hitter underperformed last year, like across the board. Spencer Torkelson was a disaster. Do I trust that the Tigers are the team that's going to unlock this for him? Like, not really. I mean, I, I get the the gamble they're taking, and I think this shows a little bit about how Soto was valued. So it's like, it's fine to shake up the offense and add three new bats. Like, they desperately needed it. I'm just not sure I see, like, Vierling being this breakout guy in this uh, lineup, in this ballpark, which we'll talk about the ballpark in a second, too. Well, let's give, I mean, you're right, but, uh, you know, Scott Harris is new. It's a new regime, new thought process, new way of approaching adjustments, strategy. So, like, I will give a benefit of the doubt, but, yes, the the Tigers' reputation over the last few years in this realm is not is not stellar. I, I would, we do want to talk about the fact that they have announced they're going to make some changes to the wall at Comerica, as Bobby Higginson once called it, Comerica National Park, because it is absolutely enormous out there. Um, we, I, we're going to like dig into this a little more in the future and write some articles about it, and we'll probably come back to this, but there's a couple of things to, to, to point out here. The center field wall is going to be moved in from 422 feet to 412, and it's going to be lowered by a foot and a half. The wall in right center field will be lowered from 13 feet to 7 feet. The right field wall will be lowered uh, from eight and a half to seven feet. So the, the middle one there is right center is what I meant. This is my favorite part. I love this one so much. Left field will be unchanged, but after research and laser measuring, the left field corner dimensions will be corrected from 345 to 342. And I really, I get a kick out of that one because every time there's a home run and stack has, you know, spits out a number where people are like, well, it went over that distance marker how could it possibly be this it's like well sometimes the distance markers aren't right (laughs) i don't know sometimes uh, they get moved around sometimes they're just like what people remember from years ago and it's funny to see it's actually being corrected um, because i think that's going to make for some more accurate numbers there people have been looking at miguel cabrera and saying wow what if he didn't play in this ballpark for like his entire career would he have like 700 homers would you be shocked to know he's actually hit better at home than on the road 
uh, his career as a Tiger. He has had a higher slugging percentage, uh, four, 544 at home and 492 on the road. Uh, he's got five more home runs at home. And I wrote about this a lot a couple years ago. Comerica is actually a decent place to hit. It's a terrible place to hit balls to dead center field, of course. But strikeouts are lower there. Hard hit rate is higher. I think it's got a great hitter's eye, which I wonder if this is going to change, actually. Uh, but it's not... If you're if you're not hitting balls to dead center, it's actually not a bad place to hit, and I think you can see that in in Cabrera's uh, career stats. The the batter's eye thing is is really interesting to me because it's one of those unquantifiable things. But like the more we look at over the years and look at data and batted ball and metrics, and like Mickey's like a perfect example that I think that that is constantly. Under, people assume oh people hit better at home. A lot of it has to do because they know their like like the dimensions are are catered to them or or they they've acquired batters who are a fit for that park. And obviously there are, you know, the, the obvious examples of, you know, the Red Sox getting right-handed pull hitters for doubles, the Yankees getting left-handed hitters like Didi Gregorius who can like flick balls over the wall. But the batter's eye is like a huge part of it. And I think like Miguel Cabrera is like the perfect example when you look at like, okay, this guy has raked at home his whole career. And even though this ballpark has this reputation of being not that great of a place to hit. Yeah, like I said, we're going to dig into it more with the StatCast data, but um, our friend Tom Tango did a quick back of the envelope thing. And he said, the average distance drops by about two and a half feet and the fence height drops by about one and a half feet. Uh, so it means maybe about 12% more home runs, which is still below average, but not like the worst in baseball, which it actually kind of was uh, this last year. Our third topic, the Dodgers and the Marlins made a trade. That's right. Our second week in a row, Matt, we're going to talk about the Marlins. Uh, straight up one for one trade of Miguel Rojas for Jacob Amaya. Miguel Rojas uh, is going to the Dodgers. Turns 34 in February. He's a very good glove, uh, but not much of a hitter. 72 OPS in 2022. Would you believe that he has the seventh most games played in Marlins history? Like That is how long he's been kicking around there. Now, I remember him. From way back in the day, he actually came up as a Dodger. He was a Reds minor leaguer forever, never made it up. Ended up with the Dodgers in 2014. Allow me to read you the starting lineup from the Dodgers in 2014 of the first game that Miguel Rojas started for them, because there are some names. Leading off at second base, Sean Figgins, his double play partner at shortstop, Hanley Ramirez, Adrian Gonzalez at first, Matt Kemp in left, Scott Van Slyke in center, Jamie Romack, a name I definitely remember, as long as there are no follow-up questions in right, Miguel Rojas in third, Drew Bruteria, a catcher, and some guy named Kershaw was pitching. That's how long ago he was there. He ended up getting traded to Miami in the, uh, I guess, the D, Strange Gordon, Dan Harron, uh, Andrew Heaney, Austin Barnes trade. Austin Barnes, now the longest non-Kershaw tenured Dodger, came over in that trade. And he's coming back. And I don't think any Dodger fan views this as anything other than a massive disappointment. <laughs> Not because Rojas isn't good. He's a very good shortstop. But you went from Corey Seager to Trey Turner to... Miguel Rojas, uh, underwhelming. Yeah, I'll make two points. One of which, Jamie Romack, he actually is Canadian, and he went to the KBO in the middle of his career because he never could stick in the majors, and he went on and hit 155 homers wow. in the KBO with a career 907 OPS. Um, and Miguel Rojas has one of the best cleat collections in baseball, which you totally forgot about. He's got some of the best, maybe the best shoe game in the majors, so he's got that working for him. Yes, it is a little overwhelming, underwhelming as a baseball move. The Dodgers also feel like a team that's well set up to do the kind of like, we know we're going to be pretty good. We have some weak spots, but we also have a good farm system. We can evaluate our team over the first couple of months. And 
they seem like the prime candidate to make some 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 in-season moves because it's I don't think the roster we see today is going to be the roster on September 1st is what I what I will say. I mean he, he might be hurt too. That's the thing, right? So he he injured his wrist last July had surgery in October. Uh and then he told MLB.com my swing changed a little bit because of the discomfort I was feeling. I wasn't getting off my good swings and he potentially may need another procedure before spring training, I think the way to look at this is he's not the one-to-one replacement for Trey Turner. He's not the new starting shortstop. He is a way to prevent Gavin Lux from having to play shortstop every day because it looked kind of rough when that happened uh, in 2021. So this puts more Lux at second base, uh, maybe less Max Muncy there, more Chris Taylor in the outfield. I'm with you. It just, this does not seem like the roster they're going to have all year. And maybe they just want to see, you know, what Miguel Vargas is for the first six weeks, which I, I think there's something to like, you want to make room for the next wave of these guys. Their farm system's fantastic. Like, I want to see Bobby Miller pitch 100 innings. I want to see Michael Bush play for a month. I want to see Miguel Vargas hit. And then on the Miami side, uh, I, I would love to know what Jacob Amaya is feeling right now. So he's from L.A. He's from West Covina. Uh, his family grew up a Dodger fans. His grandfather actually played for the Dodgers in the minor leagues back in the 1950s. He's this close to being a Dodger. And he gets traded to Miami. I, more opportunity. It's, it's, it's- his bat to the big leagues is a lot clearer now. We'll yes, just say that. it is. So the Miami infield, okay, Jazz Chisholm at second. Jean uh, Segura, who they signed last week at third. Shortstop, Joey Wendell? Jordan Grushens? Uh, Kim Ang uh, this morning said she had a Zoom meeting about this, and she said she wasn't willing to commit on naming the starting shortstop yet. There's a lot of offseason left. I guess. Are they going to sign Elvis Andrews or Jose Iglesias? Again, will it matter? I will, on a follow-up to our pitching conversation last week, they did end up signing Johnny Cueto, which does imply to me that that they are going to trade a starting pitcher for a bat somehow. Hasn't Chisholm in the past said he wants to play? Now, I'm not saying he can. Yes. I'm not sure if he's got the arm for it. I feel like he's been vocal about wanting to play shortstop. Re- recently. I, I saw him say recently like he still had hopes to do it. it. It did not look good when he was there. I mean, first things first, he's got to stay healthy, right? Like he missed most of last year. But he is, I mean, he is there, the, the, essentially there on the, on the position player side, essentially the face of their franchise. If they want to sign him to a long-term deal... Maybe they'll feel like putting him at shortstop would be a way to sort of show that they're they're invested in him and there's faith in him. But I could also this seems like a very obvious Jose Iglesias home as well. But the trade thing's interesting, you know. I still think that they're. I mean, I said it last week. I think they're a a prime Brian Reynolds destination. I feel like they might be able to piece something together for him. Um, a team to keep an eye on because it seems like they're going to do. They have something up their sleeve. I, I don't know. We. I feel like we always say they have something up their sleeves and they never actually seem to. <laughs> like I, I will file this under. I will believe it when I see it. We will take a break and we'll come back. We're going to talk about the Hall of Famers you might see live and on the field in 2023. We are back on the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast, Mike Petriello and Matt Myers. Each year, I write a piece where I try to like game out which Hall of Famers might you see on the field. I've done it for like seven of the last eight years. I didn't do it last year because of the labor situation, and I didn't think anybody would notice, but I actually got some tweets from people saying, oh, like, where was that article? I loved reading about it. Then when I did it this year, I saw some people saying, oh, this is great. I missed it last year. So people get some utility out of it. Um, it's always kind of funny to, to, to look ahead and try to game out what it's going to be. I was thinking, you know, what if I had done this in like 1989? And I probably would have written, oh, Don Mattingly, Roger Clemens, absolute Hall of Famers. That that 
guy Edgar in Seattle who can't stick? What? Forget about it. So it's like, you never know. And the first thing I did was um, I needed to get to a number to get to, right? So I just looked back at history. And, you know, if you look, I did it a couple different time periods, but between uh, 1969 and 1998, which is like the divisional era to the 30-team era, 39 Hall of Famers per season from 1947 to 2000 at 38. So I, I said 40. I actually think that's too low um, because remember, there was only 16 teams in 1947 and now there are 30. But um, I came up with 40. And I think the, the problem I always end up having when I do this is like, okay, it's easy to say the obvious guys. It's easy to say the young up and coming stars. And then I get to the end and I only have two spots left. And it's like, okay, but there's like 80 top prospects and you know, one or two of them are going to have great careers. I will say, Matt, I started from the top and I was, I was trying to pretty simple to say, the five no-doubt guys you will see, Trout, Verlander, Kershaw, Scherzer, Miguel Cabrera, no questions asked whatsoever about those. Yeah, obviously. I think after that is when it gets, starts to get interesting. And I think it's also, it's hard to process the idea of just how standards have changed. And I think that like, you know, for a long time, the BBWA as a body was generally a pretty small hall organization. And it was like, you got you, you you really have to hit these benchmarks if you want to get in. 500 home runs, 3,000 hits, 300 wins, that kind of thing. And a lot of those benchmarks, especially the 300 wins, just don't happen anymore. And I think that, like, the new wave of BBWA voters, you and me included, we will be voting in the next few years, are, are going to have a very different opinion. And I actually do think that, like, a lot of the research that's been done that's shown, like, hey, how modern players are underrepresented and things of that nature is starting to to seep in. And I think it'll be really interesting when we get to guys like Joey Votto, who you have on your list of going to make it to the Hall of Fame one day, he's not going to hit any of those benchmarks, but I think he's going to get into the Hall of Fame. And I think that's going to be like a big first step to sort of like open the doors for a lot more of these other players who don't hit the benchmarks. Yeah, there are three of those guys that I want to highlight with you in a second. But um, since you talked about the way that future voters may change things, I was thinking about the youngest guys on my list. So let's say Julio Rodriguez, right? Or Adley Rutschman, guys who just completed their first year. Will they actually be Hall of Famers? I don't know, but they got off to a fantastic start. Do you know when they might be on a Hall of Fame ballot? Let's say Julio Rodriguez plays for, I don't know, 17 seasons and then has to wait five seasons. You know what year that is? That's 2045. That is like, are we living on Mars by then? What kind of standards are, is it? Is the Hall of Fame going to hover above like the charred remains of upstate New York? Like that is, that's a fake year. So to act as though I know how anybody in that year will like, evaluate baseball i absolutely do not there's three guys i want to talk about because I, I think they're interesting um vado i think is is a perfect example right he's not going to get 500 homers or 300 3000 hits but if you go uh, just look in the integrated era of baseball and you have a career 400 on base and a 500 slugging it as he does only 17 guys uh, including him have done it and we're talking like jeff bagwell and you know, ted williams and barry bonds he's got an mvp i think 30 years ago he doesn't make the hall of fame and now I kind of think he's going to sail right in. I also think it's going to help people seem to love him. And there's always like a little boost for a guy who spent almost all of his career with one team or, or maybe all if he's finished after this year. Like I, I think he's going to sail in without any problems. Agree? Um, I don't think first ballot, but I think he will get in third ballot at the latest is my okay. prediction. The, the second guy I want to talk about, and obviously I'm skipping over some like, you know, is Mookie Betts going to get in? Yeah, probably like Francisco Lindor. Sure. Um, there, there's two interesting cases. I think we're going to have to think about Giancarlo Stanton does not feel like a fall favor to me. You know, if we're going into the, the vibes and feel portion of the show, like he doesn't feel like it because he's not been that good the last couple of years, right? Over the last four years, he has been worth exactly four wins above replacement 
because it keeps getting hurt and he's a dh now but the thing is uh he hit 35 home runs in 21 and 31 home runs in 22 and he's only 122 homers away from 500 and if you get in if you get to 500 and you're not you know implicated in PED mess you get in and it's like could he hit 25 home runs a year for five more years like in his sleep i think he could do that as long as he's available to play even like a part of the season which i know is not always a given with him if he gets to 500 he's in right that's a good question. I mean, as you said, everyone who's hit 500 home runs who does not have any PED connections is in. That said, there are a bunch of guys with more than 500 home runs who are not in the Hall of Fame. And so at least, I don't want to say it might have, maybe has been a bit normalized for players with more than 500 home runs to not get in, but like there is some precedent for it. So it's possible. It really depends on like, I feel like Stan actually needs a couple more like legitimately good years. If he like, I mean, he's basically been like, Dave Kingman the last couple of years, like, you know, like, like 300 OBP or below hits, hits some like impressive dingers now and then, but like actually not a very good player. So I actually think he needs to have a couple of like legitimately more good seasons plus the 500 home runs to get there. If he gets, if he gets to 500 and it's like 300 OBP here on in, I'm not sure he makes it. Uh, the last guy I want to talk about is Jacob deGrom, and he's he's sort of an entry point into the just, we have no idea how we're going to be able to evaluate starting pitchers, right? Nobody is ever going to get to 300 wins again, unless Jacob, unless just, Justin Verlander does actually pitch till he's like 45. I'm not even sure guys are going to get to 200 wins anymore, because the nature of the game has played so much, and because deGrom has been hurt so much, like he's not, he's, he's going to end up throwing like, I don't know, barely even half of the innings that Bob Gibson did, right? But he is still the best pitcher in the game. And I don't care necessarily how much of this Rangers contract he stays healthy for. If he has like one more good year, just like one, and he wins a third Cy Young, everybody who's ever won three who isn't Roger Clemens is in the Hall of Fame. Like it's it's the Sandy Koufax argument, right? It's the it's the peak over durability. Like you have to be really great to overcome the fact that you didn't play, you know, over a, a lot of innings over a lot of years. But DeGrom is that kind of great if he has one more great year and wins a Cy Young, I think. I think it's very possible it gets in. That said, the Sandy Koufax argument also has a lot of postseason baked in because the guy like Johan Santana has a similar regular season track record to, to Sandy Koufax and did not come close. I'm not saying he's Sandy Koufax, but like the regular season cases are a lot closer than most people would think. But like Koufax had all the postseason accolades. If, if Koufax doesn't have the postseason accolades, he, I'm not sure he's in the Hall of Fame. Do you know how many postseason starts Sandy Koufax made outside of the World Series? Zero. Zero. <laughs> it's exactly right. Because he played before playoffs. Right. right, right. World, Seri- World Series accolades. Well, I, I, I just mean, meant it's a different I mean, sport. I guess he, did, he, does, he also does have, he did have, I guess, he, what he had three Cy Youngs and Johan had two. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest difference I, is that Koufax would throw like 320 innings a year. But like, no one's ever doing that again. <laughs> uh, the, way, the way I look at it is like, we've got these like aging legends at the top, like Scherzer, Verlander, Kershaw, Adam Wainwright, who's not going to get in, but you know, he's in that group, Granky. Those guys are all going to be out of the league in the next, I don't know, three-ish years, I think. And then we've got the next group of guys and it's like, you know, Garrett Cole, Aaron Nola, you know, guys like that, they're, they're never going to put up the numbers um, either like in pitching wins or even like wins above replacement because they're not going to have the innings. And yet, we can't reasonably say we're never inducting a starting pitcher again. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. We have to find new ways to evaluate these guys against the the guys of their generation. We can't say, well, Bob Gibson did this. Like, well, that's great, but Bob Gibson pitched 55 years ago. He's not pitching right now. It's a different sport. 
I think that's right. And I think that, I think that the 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 voters will like kind of figure this out as they go. There'll probably be some some bumps along the way that end up being kind of that sort of force us to really recalibrate our expectations. There'll probably be some player who deserves to get in who doesn't, and then it ends up going in on some some committee years later, like the the modern day Burt Blylevin who like needs a someone to kind of make their case and explain why the voters totally missed on them. And I don't know who that's going to be. It could end up being someone like, like Jacob deGrom or Chris Sale for that matter. But I guess we'll, we'll, it'll, it'll take some time before, before, before we find out. We are what, 12 days or so away, I think from the, uh, this year's ballot being unveiled, the uh, results. Uh, so next week we'll talk a little bit about the guys on that ballot and what the voting looks like. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. That'll do it for this week's podcast. Don't miss an episode by subscribing on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, please leave us a rating and a review. Thanks for listening to the Ballpark Dimensions podcast. See you next week.